0: We'll be in Mark chapter 14, and we'll read verses 1 through 52. It was now two days before the Passover and the feast of unleavened bread. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money, and he sought an opportunity to betray him. And he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready there prepared for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he came with the 12. And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful, but after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. And Peter said to him, even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, truly, I tell you this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took but a linen cloth about his body. And they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. You can have a seat. It's uh, Palm Sunday this week. And I know last week we kind of did, started the passage uh, that was traditionally Palm Sunday, right? But that story isn't quite done, and we continue it today. We saw last week how Jesus came into Jerusalem and 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 how Jesus is this authority, if you remember, this authority who succeeds where we fail, where everyone else fails, and not just where those authorities fail, right? We talked about how it he succeeds where we fail because we all are given authority in some way and some to, to some degree, and, and we fail at that responsibility. But Jesus doesn't only succeed where we fail. There's more to that story. You see, by by the grace of God and by the grace of my wife, I had the wonderful privilege this last week of celebrating my 15 year anniversary so uh, we made it 15 years. yeah, woo yeah. and I say it that way because I've lost track of the amount of times in 15 years that I have failed to be the husband that I know that I ought to be. I've failed to be the husband that God has called me to be. I've failed to be the husband um, that I'm supposed to be to my wife. And yet, Amanda has been gracious to me, and my failures have often become an opportunity for my wife to reveal to me, not only her faithfulness to me as her husband, but maybe more importantly, her faithfulness to God in keeping the commitment and that she's made, and being the wife that She's called to be by God, even when I'm not the husband that I'm called to be. It's likely that you know someone who, and maybe you yourself have done this, who've used your spouse's failures, who've used their spouse's failures as an excuse to not live up to or be faithful to all that God has called you to be, in your marriage. In fact, you probably know someone who has used their spouse's failures even to excuse or to justify unfaithfulness, infidelity. Perhaps even in your own mind or in your own heart, you can understand why that might happen. You may even you may even begin to excuse someone for it, depending on the situation. Maybe even thinking, eh, it was kind of deserved. The scripture illustrates our relationship with Jesus in a number of different ways. But one of the ways it does that is it, it says that the church is the bride of Christ. It, it, it illustrates our relationship as the church to Jesus as a marriage, We're Christ's bride, and yet we know that in countless ways, we've often failed him. We've not been who or done who we we ought to do. We know, though, that Jesus doesn't fail. That where we failed, right, like we talked about last week, where we failed, Jesus succeeds, but how are we to think about our own failure? How are we to think about the ways that we have let Jesus down in this relationship, in this marriage that we have with him? What is to come of that? I'm sure if we spent much time sitting here thinking you could uh, you could think about any number of ways that you've failed Christ, that you've gone back to sins that you've committed a hundred times, where you've not been obedient to something that he's called you to do, where you felt like you were supposed to do something for him and, he, and it just totally blew up and it didn't work any how you thought it ought to and it just, it, it went terrible. I, I can imagine, if you're anything like me, that given even a few minutes, you could fill your fingers with examples, Right? If I've failed in all of those ways, I could understand how Christ would want to be done with me. How he'd be, frankly, tired of using me to do X, Y, Z. How he might put me on the shelf, on the bench, if you will. You know what, we're, we're calling in the reliever here, Cody. Bring in the lefty, because you, you keep giving up home runs. Frankly, you might begin to wonder, oh, maybe Jesus wants to be rid of me. Maybe he'd like a different bride. Why would he be faithful to me when I've been such a failure? What we find in our passage today is three different scenes of Jesus with his disciples. We see him in the house of Simon the leper, we see him in the upper room, and we see him in the garden of Gethsemane. And in each scene, what we see is Jesus knowing, knowing full well by his own words that he's going to be betrayed, knowing full well that his disciples are going to abandon him. They're not going to live up to what they ought to live up to. And yet, and yet in the midst of that, he continues to not only move towards his disciples relationship, relationally, but at the same time, he's moving towards the cross personally, right? He's simultaneously doing both of these things. He's moving towards the cross that he will die on because of our failures Knowing that in the midst of that process, his disciples are going to abandon him, and yet he continues to move towards them, not away from them. It's shocking, really. What we find is that Jesus' faithfulness, it isn't dependent on us. This is the biggest thing that I want you to get this morning. Jesus is faithful, To us, because Jesus is faithful. Let me say that again. Maybe this is a little too profound for you. Jesus is faithful to us because, wait, wait, wait. Jesus is faithful. Do you get this? Faithfulness takes its very definition from the character of God. And God must be himself. He does not change. He cannot be otherwise. He is faithful because that's who he is. Jesus doesn't only succeed when we fail. Jesus turns our failure into his faithfulness. Or maybe a better way of saying it is, in the midst of our failure, Jesus' faithfulness is even more evident. We'll see this in our passage in three displays of faithfulness, one for each of the three scenes that we have. First, we'll see that our actions cannot betray his purposes, he'll be faithful to his purposes. Second, our ignorance cannot betray his assurance and third our weakness cannot betray his strength so let's look at this first scene where jesus is at the house of simon the leper and 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 i said last week that mark has these narrative sandwiches do you remember i was talking about these narrative sandwiches and then you were getting hungry you remember about that i'm sure you hit up good sense later uh, that day but Mark has these narrative sandwiches where he opens up a story and then, and then he kind of closes the story over here and in the middle is like this other story. And you, if you read through, you think like, why did he interrupt the story with this other thing? Why didn't he just tell this and then tell that? But there's a purpose to it. Last week, we saw uh, two scenes with fig trees and then the cleansing of the temple in the middle and the cleansing was kind of the meat of the story. This week, Mark 14, 1 through 11, is another great example of one of these narrative sandwiches. Look, look at the passage there. In verses 1 and 2, we see the chief priests plotting to kill Jesus. But they don't know how they can do it. There's mobs of extra people in Jerusalem probably double the population, and a lot of them know who Jesus is. A lot of them are celebrating Jesus, right? We just saw that. He comes into town, Hosanna, Hosanna, all the, all the rest. And they're thinking, we can't, we can't do this this week with all these people here. The moms will be after us. And then in verse 10 through 11, we see Judas going to the chief priests, having decided to betray Jesus, and he's going to provide for them the opportunity that they need, the opportunity that they don't even think they'll be able to get that week. But as with any of these sandwiches, it's what's in the middle that's really the meat of the story. So what happens in between? Here's what happens. Jesus and his disciples, they go and they eat at the house of Simon the leper. And we don't know if he was a, a, a leper at that moment, a leper before, a leper after, whatever. His name is Simon the leper. That's how people would have known him in the first century. Either way, this is probably a little bit of a scandalous place for Jesus to go and dine. And a woman comes in with an alabaster jar and makes the situation even more scandalous, right? And it's this jar filled with ointment of nard, it says. You know, we don't know really what alabaster jars are or ointments of nard are today. But it was likely about 12 ounces of this ointment in a jar that would have been sealed for one-time use. Literally, you'd have to break the piggy bank to use it, if you will. And I do mean piggy bank because this ointment, 12 ounces, would have been worth a year's wage for the common labor. This was uh, expensive. I don't even know what we could possibly compare it to today. Uh, Could you imagine someone walks in with a bottle 12 ounces of a fluid, and it's worth, I don't know, $50,000, $60,000? Like, I wouldn't even, I, w- I mean, would you even be, I wouldn't even be carrying that thing around. I'd have it in like a padded suitcase with like a handcuff to my, you know, wrist or something, right? And she just walks in, and she breaks this thing, and she pours it on Jesus' head. The disciples, They object. We could have used that for the poor. All that money, we could have sold that. Think of how many people we could have fed or provided for. And frankly, uh, frankly, that, that does seem like the most practical consideration. I, I have to say that I think if I was there amongst the disciples, I would have quickly gone, yeah, that, that, makes, that makes way more sense. Why'd she just waste that whole thing? But Jesus rebukes them. Leave her alone. She's done a beautiful thing for me. For you will always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. It's not that Jesus doesn't care about the poor. It's not that Jesus doesn't want us to provide for the poor, to to do things for the poor. He certainly does, but he recognizes that her heart, her heart wasn't, a heart that that didn't love the poor. Her heart was a heart that, that was full of love and devotion and worship for him. And that's right and good. He really is that big of a deal. Above what, was pragmatic or practical, she was led to pour out all she had for him. Literally and figuratively, right? She didn't question it. She didn't try to justify why she should or shouldn't do whatever. It was merely, it wasn't merely a jar, actually. It was her heart that was broken and poured out for Jesus, in unquestioning obedience and worship. And I wonder, in all the things that we do as Christ's followers, all the great practical, pragmatic things, are our hearts so broken in love for Jesus that we unquestioningly pour them out in obedience to him? See, the heart, that heart is in contrast to the hearts of the disciples who didn't get it. But most of all, it's in contrast to the heart of Judas, who though outwardly he looked obedient for years, inwardly he was filled with selfishness, right? He had his own purposes. It's too easy at times to reframe our lack of surrender, our lack of worship, our lack of obedience to God as being practical. Well, this is just really more practical, what we're really doing is disguising our lack of desire to just be obedient to whatever Jesus calls us to do. But is that really practical? I mean, think about this. Isn't trusting an omnipotent and sovereign and omniscient God logically the most practical thing you can do whether you get that situation whether you understand it or not you see we have no reason to think that this woman understood the true extent of what she was just what she had just done it wasn't like she was walking in and she was going oh i know that jesus is going to die in 2 days He's not going to have time after he dies. They're not going to have time to to anoint him with oil. So I think, well, I just happen to have this bottle of oil. Maybe I'll go in beforehand and I'll anoint him. No, she doesn't have any idea about any of that. The first inkling she gets is when Jesus says it after she's already done it. Yet Jesus explains, she's anointed my body beforehand for burial. This woman's devotion, even though it seemed crazy, turns out to be the absolute most sane action when we zoom out and we see all of God's purposes. And I wonder what things God's calling you to do that seem crazy to you right now. Oh, I don't want to, I can't be obedient to that. that. That's not practical. But if we were to zoom out in the grand scope of all of God's purposes, they would be the most sane thing that you could possibly do. So let me recap. We've got chief priests who are out to get Jesus. We've got disciples who don't understand what's happening. We've got Judas whose response is to be so fed up with, with whatever's going on that he wants to betray Jesus now. And we've got a woman who does the right action, probably doesn't get how that action is going to be used and would have never had an inkling unless Jesus had said it. Friends, here's the point. Our actions, they can't, they can't betray his purposes. Jesus' purpose here is to die. But, but not just that. He reveals that his purpose even goes beyond that, does he not? That God's plan is to resurrect him in order that the whole world, it says, the whole world, not just Jews, but Gentiles also, the whole world can hear the gospel. God fulfills his purposes by our obedience, and at times he fulfills them in spite of our disobedience. Do you see? Do you see that God has a purpose, and he uses this woman's obedience and worship anointing him, and he also uses Judas's betrayal and disobedience. But all of them work together to bring about God's purpose. Our actions cannot betray his purposes. So stop, friends, stop asking yourself, how can I be successful for Jesus? And start asking, how can I just be obedient to Jesus? Because if you're just obedient to Jesus, you are successful for Jesus that is success in the kingdom of God We see this fleshed out in verses 12 through 16 right Jesus tells his disciples to go into the city first guy you see carrying a jar of water which would have been odd truthfully guys didn't usually carry around jars of water in the first century first guy you see follow him to the house he goes to okay that's a little creeper and then ask, ask the, the, the master of the house, hey, where's my room? Where, is it prepared? Now, I don't know if Jesus had gone into the city beforehand and had made some sort of arrangement, his disciples didn't know about it, or if this is just kind of like this miraculous thing that he does. But either way, his disciples just do what he says, even though it sounds a little bit off. And it works. Imagine that. Jesus had a plan, his disciples obeyed, and it worked how Jesus intended. And so we come to a second scene, that, that upper room scene. And again, there's a little bit of a sandwich here. Uh, we have these two bread slices, if you will. We've got Jesus predicting that one of the 12 will betray him. And the disciples are sorrowful, he says. And they, they see, it seems that they're genuinely asking Jesus, is it, is it I? Is it me? Jesus, am I the one that's going to betray you? And then on the backside of this story, verses 26 through 31, Jesus predicts that they're all going to fall away when he's arrested, right? And Peter is kind of the example for the group, and he says, no, I'll never fall away. Never. Jesus tells him, no, you'll deny me three times. same Peter, the same disciples who just a little bit before were questioning, is it I that will betray you? Will I betray you? Which is something that's way worse than denying Jesus, right? Now all of a sudden they're so confident that they will never deny him. I'll never do that. The disciples' field of vision is just incredibly myopic here, right? They're so concerned with themselves, and yet they have no idea what they're capable of, either good or bad. They're completely ignorant. And look at what happens in the middle. In the, in the meat of this sandwich, Jesus turns to his disciples and he shares this meal with them. He gives them bread and he gives them wine and he declares not that, that they're not just sustenance for this moment, but that they're spiritual provision, Right? that there are spiritual benefits that his followers will receive that this meal represents. But what is it that it represents but his death? A death that hasn't happened yet. Do you think about this? Jesus is giving these elements declaring them to be representative of a thing that has not happened, declaring that they will get spiritual benefit from them even though he hasn't done, even though he hasn't actually died and rose from the grave yet. Jesus knows not only what he is capable of doing, he knows what he will do, period. And he's so confident in it, he's so sure of it, that he will actually give them the sign, this, this supper that represents it, ahead of time, before he's even gone to the cross. Do you ever wonder? It would make more sense for Jesus to have established the Lord's Supper after he rose from the dead, but he doesn't. He does it before. And Jesus is so sure he can give them a foretaste in the Lord's Supper that, of the salvation that he's about to win for his people. That makes me think of the hymn, you know, Blessed Assurance, Jesus is Mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. You see, the point is that our ignorance cannot betray his assurance. We have this contrast of humanity's ignorant arrogance. Oh, I won't deny you. Oh, I won't. They have no idea. And it's contrasted with this divine confidence. And we see that, and we've seen that in the Bible everywhere since the first sin, right? Humanity continually being Ignorantly arrogant about themselves and what they will or won't do, making claims, trying to accomplish things on their own, and God is simply confident because He's in control. See, when we get married, we have no idea what will happen, right? You stand up there on that wedding day and you make this commitment, and you've got no idea what you're committing to right man you got no idea the arguments you're going to have you got no idea the things that are going to happen you got no idea the mistakes that you're going to make or your spouse is going to make you got no idea what you're committing to i mean sure you stand up there and you think you know that's arrogance and you got no idea i 15 years ago i had no idea Jesus knows, Jesus knows when he saved you, he knew, he knew exactly what he was committing to, because he doesn't waver in his decision, he's totally sure. He's absolutely sure, absolutely sure that he can win what he set out to win, that he says, I'll drink this again in the kingdom. So we go to scene three, the garden, Gethsemane, Jesus takes his disciples and, and he leaves the rest of the disciples behind. He takes just three of them with him, Peter, James, and John. And it says that Jesus is distressed and he tells his disciples that he's distressed, he's sorrowful even to death. You'd think that that'd be a significant thing to hear from Jesus, that it might kind of shock you a little bit. He tells them to, to wait and watch and to pray, but they have some trouble with that. And Jesus goes on a little farther and he falls on the ground he's praying to the Father and he's praying for the cup to be removed from him and the cup the cup is an old testament metaphor for punishment and for judgment and and, and Jesus understands what is about to happen. And I want you to understand that it's not what troubles Jesus is not the physical pain that he's about to go through. Now, that's not to to understate that physical pain, but that is not what's troubling Jesus. The cup is not the physical pain. The cup is the punishment and the judgment and the wrath of God that he is about to bear for our sins, for the sins of all of God's people. What's troubling him and distressing him even to death is that he'll be forsaken by the Father. And yet he still says, not what I will, but what you will. And Jesus returns twice to his disciples to find them sleeping rather than watching and praying with him as he had commanded them to do. And Peter, Peter, the same Peter who said, oh, I'd die before denying you. He can't even stay up for an hour and pray. When Jesus says that he is distressed even to death. <laughs> what irony, right? I, Jesus says, I'm going to die. I'll die with you. Jesus says, oh, I'm distressed to death. Will you pray with me? I'm out. After the third time praying, in the same way, Jesus wakes them up and he says, rise, let us be going see my betrayer is at hand. Jesus prayed for the cup to go away and he prayed that God's will would be done. And how often have you and I prayed similarly, right? We pray, God, would you do this or would you take away that or would you heal this? But God, not what I will, but what you will be done. I trust you. God, would you, would you do this? But, but if you don't, I know that you're in charge and you're in control. And we say that to ourselves. God is God. I trust him, whatever he does. And then when God doesn't do what we asked for, do we say, rise, let us go? My betrayer is at hand. Or do we whine and doubt? God. Do we turn and we go, oh, I don't understand. God doesn't, he didn't show up. Uh, God's not good and powerful. Uh. The three disciples, they couldn't stay awake. But their cowardly act, but the most cowardly act, I should say, of this scene comes from Judas, who, With the backing of the temple police, comes and finds Jesus, betrays him with a kiss, even. That he would have the audacity to call him Rabbi, as if he was actually following him. And when they seized Jesus, now suddenly Peter has a this bolt of energy, right? Now suddenly Peter's wide awake with his sword drawn. But Jesus stops and what could have been, it <laughs> could have turned into probably quite the brawl. And he says, eh, you could have arrested me anytime. I was in the temple, you could arrest me anytime. Of course, we know that they didn't want to arrest him there. They wanted to arrest him somewhere where the mob wouldn't see. That mob that they were concerned about in the first two verses of this chapter, they had to find some desolate place. And so Judas finds the opportunity here. But Jesus says, you think you've come in strength with swords. But actually, all of this was already declared by God's word, by the sword of the spirit, right? I See, everyone else leaves him and flees. And, and I don't know why, I honestly don't know why verses 51 and 52 are in here. I thought about that a little bit this, this last couple of weeks going, why, why, are 50, why are verses 51 and 52 in here? And I'm not, I'm not entirely sure why they're included, but I like to think that it reveals how the disciples have been stripped completely bare of the pride that has plagued them throughout this entire gospel, right? I mean, as we've read through this and as we've gone through this, we've seen Peter say that he would die with him. We've seen James and John wanna be by his side and drink from his cup. And when it all came down to it, they run away naked, And haven't we also often done the same? When life strips us down, when life reveals our weaknesses, how often does it reveal the weakness of our faith as well? But here's the point I want you to get. Our weakness cannot betray his strength. Even when the disciples fall asleep while he's praying, he says, rise, get up. Let's go. Even when our flesh is too weak to keep us from temptation, when we're too quick to rely on ourselves, on our own strength and our own determination, on our own power than to trust in God, even when we are too cowardly to stand with him in the moments where it's unpopular and it's painful to do so, he is resolute in his strength But paradoxically, friends, his strength is actually seen most in his submission to God, to death. You see, strength isn't the power to do anything, but the courage to trust God in everything. True strength, it's not the power to do anything you want. It's the strength, the courage to trust God with everything. It's hard to do. It's hard to do when life seems to go horribly wrong, when things don't go the way that you'd hoped, when you mess up over and over again and you feel like you've been stripped naked and all you want to do is run away. It's hard But here's where we got to look forward, not only to the body and blood of Jesus represented in that Lord's Supper, but also to the kingdom that he says that he will drink in once again, the kingdom that will be inaugurated at his resurrection. You see, because Jesus rose from the dead and he sent the Holy Spirit, even when we don't understand what we should do, even when we mess it up, he made it possible for us to still join in him in his purposes because Jesus rose from the dead even when we're ignorant and even when we're arrogant and altogether wrong, he sends his spirit who illuminates our minds and empowers us in ways that we can't even understand how he does it. Because Jesus rose from the dead even when we lack the power to pray, the courage to stand, Jesus intercedes for us at the throne of God and the Spirit strengthens us and gives us the words to say in the right moment when it's too much for us to figure out. You see, Jesus, he turns our failure into his faithfulness. And Jesus' faithfulness is perhaps most vividly seen in our failure. Now, should we fail then? No, no, we shouldn't intentionally fail. Rather, his faithfulness ought to motivate us to be faithful to him. And just as a spouse's faithfulness, even when we screw up, motivates us to want to love them more, to want to work harder, to be the husband that we ought to be. His faithfulness empowers us also, though, to not live in constant fear of our failure. Friends, when you have a Savior, when you have a Lord who is big enough to turn your failure into faithfulness, you don't have to live frozen in fear maybe though you think, ah, that might work for some people that that maybe mess up sometimes, but Cody, you don't know me. Like, I have totally blown this thing. Like, I've I'm too far gone, I've messed up too much, I'm not smart enough uh, to get it, I'm not strong enough to do it, But, but friends, Ephesians 5, I want you to turn your eyes to Ephesians 5 for a second. It tells us that the church is Christ's bride, and the Bible is clear, right, that we failed in that, and we continue to fail, but he is constantly faithful. It says this, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, so that she might be holy and without blemish. Friends, I want you to understand, this is what Jesus promises to be faithful to do. You, the church, he will cleanse he will sanctify. He will take away the spots and the wrinkles and the blemishes. And he will present you to who? To himself. He knows your failure. We right, we don't need to we don't need to blow sunshine unnecessarily here, right? Like like we, we're all failures in a lot of ways. He knows that. And yet Christ loves us so much. He's so faithful to what he promises. He will be faithful to you. He will make you faithful to Him. That's His purpose for the church. He has such assurance that He declares it beforehand. He has such strength that He knows He will do it.